Hello and welcome to In the Booth here on Sportsnet 650. Happy New Year. Brendan Batchelor alongside Randy Janda. And we're back after a little bit of a holiday break, Randy. So happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to all the listeners. And thanks for joining us here yet again on another edition of In the Booth. Coming off the Canucks loss in St. Louis on Thursday night to begin their seven-game road trip. And uh, Randeep, I hope you're well-rested, had a good holiday season, and now we can get back into talking about this team as they began to embark on their longest trip of the season, and it didn't go well for them in St. Louis. Yeah, I'm fresh, Coach. I'm ready to go in, but as far <laughs> as the uh, the team is concerned, uh, they they won't be fresh at the end of this road trip. A seven-gamer, which is the long, longest one they've got uh, this season, and the last game, of course, you head into St. Louis, the first game of the trip, and there were chances there for this team. There were serious chances in the third period where you could take the lead, tie up the game, but Batch missed opportunities, and this is something that you have a real good opportunity to set the tone for the rest of the road trip, and it just felt like the game against St. Louis, a game of missed opportunities. Yeah, let, let's get into some of those opportunities, particularly in the third period, when the game was tied at one and then, you know, as well, when they went down two to one after Robert Thomas scored the go ahead goal, Besser had a good look, missed the net. Niels Hoaglander had a good look, missed the net. Tyler Myers had a good look, missed the net. And you know what? It's a long season, 82 games. Those kind of things are going to happen. So I don't read into it too much in terms of a, a larger takeaway. But when you analyze this game in a vacuum, the Canucks needed to test Jordan Biddington more than they did throughout the game, and especially in the third period, I thought, anyway. Absolutely, and just hitting the target, right, sometimes. And, and this is what I think St. Louis did a good job of. They were actually shooting for rebounds on a lot of their shots early on in the game, whether it was Kasperi Kapanen, and that kind of carried on throughout where not only getting pucks on the net, but crashing the crease and, and trying to find that greasy goal on Thatcher Demko. In the third period, uh, the Canucks had looks. Brock Besser, you mentioned it. Um, it was even late in the game. There was another opportunity for Brock Besser, but Sunquist with a heck of a defensive play to really close down and make sure he got his stick on on the puck. But Niels Hoaglander misses the net. Uh, Teddy Bluger, probably the best chance of all of them, was on a three-on-two, and he just can't get the right amount of lumber on that shot. Otherwise, that might be a goal. So, you know, unfortunately, for a team that's executed so well this season thus far, this was one of those games where... Two things I didn't necessarily, uh, the finishing is one thing, but the lack of traffic in front of the net, uh, not getting enough pucks on net, but when they did go, uh, Jordan Bennington, it's pretty easy for him. He didn't have to make any acrobatic batic saves. Uh, credit to him, technically sound, but on top of that, I think if you're the Canucks, you need to do a better job of creating some traffic in front of him. Quiet night for the top six. I thought, you know, Elias Patterson, not his best outing as a, a Vancouver Canuck, I think it's fair to say, and you know, I can already hear the listeners shouting at their radios or their phones if they're listening to us on a podcast about the Andre Kuzmenko scratches. Sam Lafferty was playing up on the Patterson line. Pew Suter was on the Miller line, and it remains to be seen if things will continue that way come Saturday when they visit the New Jersey Devils uh, to begin the true eastern portion of this road trip. Uh, but let's get into Kuzmenko. That's the fifth healthy scratch for him this year. Obviously, there was a lot of noise on Twitter and really around the league when uh, people saw that Kuzmenko was out of the lineup. Hold and on one second. Hold on one second. 
There's a lot of noise after Elliot Friedman retweeted your tweet. <laughs> well, I heard noise from around the league after that okay. happened. Uh, fans from multiple fan bases saying that they would like their team to go out and acquire Andre Kuzmenko. And I don't necessarily know if this healthy scratch means that uh, a trade is in the offing or imminent here. But something we did notice, especially early in this game, and I remember, I think you said it to me during one of the commercial breaks of the game against the Blues, was it felt like they were more effective on the forecheck as a team, and particularly that fourth line with Linus Carlson and Niels Hoaglander playing with Niels Oman, as opposed to Andre Kuzmenko. And I'm sure there are a number of things that the coaching staff and Rick Tockett want Kuzmenko to work on in his game. But one thing they've emphasized publicly multiple times is the forechecking, and it's something that he's made some improvements in, but clearly not enough for this coaching staff to this point, to the point where, and and this is where we get a lot of the complaints from fans, they are willing to give up the offensive upside that Kuzmenko brings when he's in the lineup because he's not buying into the way that they want to play. Yeah, a lot of folks will look at that 2-1 scoreline saying, hey, this this is a game that you needed, Andre Kuzmenko, but here's the issue that I have with that statement. That's ignoring the fact that the Canucks, in the previous 11 games, had scored four goals or more in seven of them. So goals are not a shortage for this team. They're still the highest-scoring team in the NHL. This was one game. Now, in regards to Kuzmenko, the forecheck wasn't consistent against St. Louis, but it was stronger, especially for a couple of lines. And with Andre Kuzmenko, this is something that we've talked about on this show quite a bit, but I feel like me and you have talked about it on every show on Sportsnet 650. It's, it's not about now. It's about, can you trust the player now, but can you trust him two months down the line? Can you trust him in a 2-2 game in overtime in the playoffs? Can you trust him in the third period of a 2-2 game in the playoffs? This is a, as Rich Tockett calls it, a learning lesson for Andre Kuzmenko. Now, the question is, can he learn from it? And, you know, that's on Andre Kuzmenko. And I know there's a lot of frustration because a game like this, you're saying, you need the goals. Kuzmenko playing would help power play one. He would help five on five. But if you're talking about getting the puck deep, if you're talking about puck management, if you're talking about an aggressive forecheck, those are areas that he's had trouble in five-on-five and against one of the best five-on-five lines in the league. The Robert Thomas line is that. Robert Thomas is one of the best five-on-five players in the game when it comes to even strength points. The word trust comes up again. So I, I can understand the Kuzmenko side of the argument, but that's not one I necessarily agree with. Now, the question I have, Batch, is on this trip, where does he play? Because New Jersey they will eat up all your mistakes in the neutral zone and score on you within seconds. They are a very quick team. Vancouver's seen them this year. The New York Rangers, yeah, they're pretty good as well. I don't know if you've checked the standings recently. They got some of the best players in the game on their team. And For my money, in terms of just watching the Canuck games individually and not reading into mm-hmm. watching other games or looking at where teams are in the league, the New York Rangers are the best opponent the Canucks have faced this year in terms of how their head-to-head meeting went and how competitive that game was at Rogers Arena a few months back. And I heard Dan Riccio mention this on Canucks Central. Against the good teams, you're in a staring contest where the first one to blink, the first one to make a mistake, is usually a goal against. New York Rangers are that type of team. Does Kuzmenko coming back in the lineup make sense on that? On the road, where you can't control the matchup? So, you know, this this question to me is, and listen, Rick Tockett might bring him in on the fourth line, may bring him on the first line. I might be wrong on this, but where does that fit? Where does that trust come in? Which matchup? So the next two games are against teams that will, will kind of eat you up if you make mistakes. 
in the neutral zone or or with puck management. So, you know, this Kuzmenko question is not going to get solved anytime soon or it's a discussion point in the city uh, when the team is winning. There's no issues with it. When you drop one game and you only score one goal, uh, it becomes a discussion point, but trust is central to this entire conversation. Yeah, and, you know, the point you make, and we've made this point numerous times in the past, about setting up for the playoffs, setting up for when the games matter. You know, now we're not officially into the second half of the season, but you're out of the holiday break. This is the unofficial second half of the season where games start to tighten up a bit. Teams dial in the way that they want to play. And if a player like Kuzmenko is unable to do that, then, you know, he's had five healthy scratches to this point. I would expect, based on the fact that they're coming off a loss, he probably goes back in Saturday against the Devils, although that remains to be seen. But if he can't dial things in, then you worry about not just his future in terms of where he's going to sit in the lineup, but his future with the organization too. And, you know, this is where it's not necessarily our level of expertise because we just called the games. And um, this is where you get into speculation and trade fodder and, and chatter about rumors and things like that. And I generally don't like to dabble in those sorts of things, but it's pretty obvious for anybody looking at this team, Kuzmenko, eats up a solid chunk of salary cap space. If the Canucks want to improve their top six, they don't have a ton of salary cap space to work with. And if Kuzmenko's not going to be a regular fixture in the top six or potentially even in the lineup, then what does it mean for his future with the organization? Yeah, and that's a very real question right now because identity of this lineup, of this team, is central to being a tough team to play against, being a north-south team, and being aggressive on the forecheck. Like, that's what the coach wants from not only his, you know, wingers on those lines, but that's what you get from JT Miller. That's what you get from Elias Pettersson when he's going uh, as an F1. Uh, so there's a standard that's built up there. And can can Kuzmenko really, you know, play that style? So when you start looking into the future, and nobody's got a crystal ball on this front, whether Andre Kuzmenko, A, can sort out his game, because that's one possibility that you hope for, right? In a perfect scenario, the Canucks probably hope that Kuzmenko can become that player and not only does he play that hard skill game but you're also in a situation where you're getting goals from him he's a dynamic player they want this to work out but that's also on the player to solve so that's it's going to be interesting because the speculation I'm sure is going to pick up here with every scratch with every game that even when he plays the last game against Ottawa this is a game where they were rolling four lines for the most part he played 11 minutes and 48 seconds so even in games that they end up winning or, you know, defensemen are getting a lot of ice time, uh, other lines are getting ice time, Kuzmenko still played sub-12. And not only were they rolling four lines, but they were down to 11 forwards because Phil DiGiuseppe right. had been knocked out in the first period. And you look back and it's clear that Tockett wanted to give Kuzmenko a little bit of rope in the month of December because you look at his ice times and – coming into the month of December, early month of December, they were around 14 minutes, 12 minutes, 10 minutes. And then around the middle of the month, he got a run where he played 15 minutes, 17 minutes, had a couple more games of north of 15 minutes. And obviously all of this is situational. And this is something I've talked about with Kuzmenko this year. When your team's got a lead and it's a comfortable lead, that's usually where he sees more ice time. Yep. Uh, also where your team's chasing and you need a goal. He's a skilled guy that can score, so there's more ice time. In tight games, his ice time goes, it craters. And that, to me, 
says everything you need to know about what the coaching staff thinks of him and how much they trust him. And it's not like, and again, I, I, I hear this from people all the time too, saying, you know, he is the kind of player he is. You're not going to turn him into a fourth-line grinder who is a, a four-checking machine. And I agree, but it's about finding that balance where you can play to the identity of the team, the identity that Talkit wants the team to have, get back to producing offense, and be kind of the best of both worlds where, yeah, you're not a fourth-line grinder, but look at a guy like JT Miller. Guess what? He's good at getting in on the forecheck. He's also good at scoring goals and producing points. That's what they need from Kuzmenko, and if they're unable to get it, you understand why speculation will get louder and louder the closer we get to the trade deadline. Well, it's also because he's a you know hot commodity. He's a top-six player when he's going, and they have vacancies in the top six, right? We talked about Phil DiGiuseppe obviously being injured, takes him out of the equation. But even when he was in the lineup, he was a player that was playing up the lineup. Remember, he had been scratched himself. So there are a couple of vacancies next to Patterson on one side, Mikheyev. But Kuzmenko, when he's going, of course he's in that spot. When he's not going, he's not going to be in that spot. JT Miller, on the left side on that line, they're searching for an answer as well. So the speculation is going to come because with the way that this team has played, there's a lot of consideration to say, hey, maybe this team can win a round. Maybe they can win a few rounds. Uh, there's people on the East Coast that are calling the Vancouver Canucks now, finally staying up to watch the games, calling them a, a Stanley Cup contender even this past weekend. So, you know, when you have that sort of talk around the team, it's not about standing pat. It's about, okay, how can you add a little bit to really solidify your top six? So for me, Kuzmenko, that's speculation. I'm not going to jump into it myself because <laughs> off air batch, you and I have all these conversations. We play fantasy GM, uh, but those are not, you know, those are not real on the air conversations, but I can understand why the NHL world is going to talk about this because it is very much a, a real possibility where we've heard teams called on Kuzmenko through Elliot Friedman. He mentioned on Saturday headlines last month, but on top of that, this is a skilled player with a little bit of term. I'm sure every GM in the league is saying, not working out this year, but last year he scored 39 goals, and the Canucks are obviously trying to address a need. So we'll see what happens here. I like Andre Kuzmenko as a player. I think he's a, a great person as well, but you got to deliver on the ice, and Rick Tockett is looking for something that right now Kuzmenko doesn't have it. Yeah, and speaking of Elliot Friedman, this is another thing that they always talk about on 32 Thoughts, is in situations like this, Teams don't thry, try to throw you a, a life preserver. They try to throw you an anchor. Yep. So, you know, it's easy for people to say, well, if you're not going to play Kuzmenko, trade him. Well, it's not that easy because you still want to get some good value. If you are going to move off him, you want to create salary cap space and then, you know, transition to bringing someone else in, theoretically. And I think we can have a conversation about what the Canucks could or should do going into the deadline without getting into some of the specifics and bringing in player names. Yeah. Because to me, that part of that conversation is for people that are much more tapped in with how, how these conversations are going than I, and I'll leave that to Elliot and, and insiders like that. But Vancouver's strategy going into the trade deadline, to me, is fascinating because it's clear the areas that they need to improve. You know, For me, top of the list is at least one winger that can play in the top six that can provide a more consistent level than what we've seen this far, whether it be that left-wing spot on the Miller line or the right-wing spot on the Pedersen line. 
but it's the philosophical approach to this that fascinates me, and I'm going to be really interested to see as we tick closer to the deadline how Jim Rutherford and Patrick Alvine and the Canucks management group go about this because, you know, this is a team that's put itself in a situation where you're right. They could make some noise in the playoffs. They could do some damage, as our good friend Brooke Ward would like to say. Shouts to Brooke. Um, But are the Canucks in a situation where you want to push all your chips in and potentially mortgage your future on rental players. Now, to me, that's not the strategy I would like to see them take because of the fact that they've got a number of unrestricted free agents this year that they may or may not be able to bring back guys that are having career years like Dakota Joshua, like Sam Lafferty, like Teddy Bluger, Ian Cole is a pending UFA, Nikita Zadorov's a pending UFA. So, you know, you look at how well this team has performed this year and you say, okay, how easy is it going to be for them to bring the band back and, and have them together again when you still have to sign Pedersen and Hironic to their extensions? Um, so there's two thoughts of uh, or approaches to this kind of strategy is, okay, maybe you're not going to be able to keep all these guys, so go all in on this year because it might be your best chance. Or are there strategic moves you can make going into the deadline, which, yes, improve your team now so you've got a better chance at having some success this season but are targeting players that can stay here for multiple seasons that you can either extend on team friendly deals or you have team control for a few years so that you're not just giving up assets to try and chase something this year with a team that you know this group of players save for you know a few of the key guys that were around in the bubble have not experienced the playoffs together before and don't have a, a track record of succeeding in the postseason. Yeah, I'm not the GM of the Vancouver Canucks, but I'm going to come with my thoughts on that front where I'm on the second thing that you mentioned when it comes to players under control, younger players maybe in their mid-20s, that would be the favorite approach. And yes, yeah. those players are going to be more expensive because you have to pay for you know that younger age. You have to potentially pay for maybe some RFA years. But are you giving yourself a little bit more runway? Are you giving yourself maybe some more you know, a decent salary that they're on where they're not, you're not overpaying them. That payday may be coming at some point, but you're building towards something just beyond this year. And, and Batch, when I, I look at that with rent, with rentals, this is a team that you mentioned it, a lot of impending UFAs already. Uh, do you want to take a step back next year? No, that's not what this MO of this team is. So picking up players with control would be in their best interest. The other thing is also um, just looking at, what the market for the rentals are. There's plenty of options out there, and I'm not going to throw out the names because we all know them. There's maybe some that are off the radar too. But one thing I will say is that when it comes to some of the teams that are not doing well in the NHL, and you talked about that Ellie Friedman line uh, about the anchors, there's some teams that are not doing well this year. And what happens in a market, and we've gone through this here in Vancouver, people start to devalue your players because the team is not doing well. That's a, that's a good position to be in as a buyer though. Because you can throw an anchor at them. Exactly. And we've seen that happen in the past where sometimes there's assessment made made on players that, oh, this guy's not good anymore. Environment has a lot to do with that. And I'll go back to that. I know this was a rental for Vancouver, but a classic example of that was Tyler Toffoli. LA was going through a stretch where they were not very good, and people in the NHL were saying, Tyler Toffoli, why would you go after him? He's not the same player he is. Well, what happened? Went to Vancouver, had a decent run, goes to Montreal, ends up torching the Canucks, has a, a decent stretch in Calgary as well, and was, at a time, one of the hottest goal scorers in the NHL. He was a rental, but there are players like that. 
out there that sometimes you devalue because they're on a bad team, it's going to take something that is, you know, paying for a player that may look like a, why are you going after that player? But does he fit with your system? And also, are you able to pick him up off a team that right now might be in shambles, but in your system, can that click? And that's why I look at, uh, uh, you know, who knows who that player is, but sometimes the obvious players that we think of, they're not the ones that end up getting moved. And that's why I've, you know, I got a couple of players in mind, maybe in the next mailbag or next uh, questions uh, next week, some of the uh, the listeners can ask me who they are. But I got a couple of players in mind that I think would be great fits in the system for the Vancouver Canucks. But we'll see if teams are sellers. Uh, you know, who's going to be a seller in two weeks? But that's going to really dictate a lot of this. Yeah, and, you know, I think that's such a good point to make because it's clear that this organization knows how it wants to play. We've talked in the past about the importance of alignment with management and the coaching staff. They need to find players that fit the identity that Rick Tockett wants to play. And to a certain extent, they need to move on from players that don't fit that identity. And that's why we talk about Kuzmenko potentially being traded. You know, maybe it doesn't happen. He's a very skilled player. You don't necessarily want to give up on that um, just because you're chasing something in one season if he's a guy that can help you for years to come potentially. But the one thing that I think we can say about this management group for sure and you know, people will have their opinions on some of the things they've done. The Miller extension, of course, is, you know, hotly debated in this market. But I don't think you can debate their ability to assess and target players that fit in well with Rick Tockett's system. And just look at some of the guys they've brought in on this roster right now. They targeted Dakota Joshua, brought him in as a free agent. Guess what? He's been a great fit. They targeted Teddy Bluger, brought him in as a free agent. Guess what? He's been a great fit. Pew Suter, same thing. Ian Cole, same thing. Now, you know, those are all free agent signings as opposed to trade acquisitions, so it's a little bit different. Sam Lafferty. Sam Lafferty, right. That's a, a trade where, again, you take advantage of a team wanting to move on from a guy. You don't pay a, a big price. You bring him in. You know, look at how they acquired Zadorov too, who, you know, they, they paid much less than I thought they were going to have to in that trade. So as you go into this trade deadline, and again, you know, we're sitting here in early January, it's still a long ways off. But the one thing we know is that Jim Rutherford historically likes to get his business done early. He doesn't like to be one of those guys that waits till the last minute. And you can have a pretty good idea that this management group knows the kind of players they want to target, has trade targets in mind that they're going to go after. And based on their track record since coming to Vancouver, I think you have to trust them because they've done a pretty good job of finding players that fit the holes on their roster. Your observation about Jim Rutherford striking early is a very important one here because maybe in Vancouver that hasn't been the case because for the first two years, they're sellers. And that doesn't happen often in a Jim Rutherford world. Like, that's not something that he's used to coming from Pittsburgh. But in Pittsburgh, whether it was the pickup of a Ron Hainsey, whether it was a pickup of, you know, players like Carl Hagelin, whoever it may have been, he does usually, when he's a, a buyer, does strike early. The other thing is, and I think this is something to keep in mind, Rutherford Alvin, and we can speak to Rutherford's experience because he's got so much experience at the GM position, and Patrick Alvin, we're still trying to figure out, but we know he comes from the Rutherford school of thought. Players address a need at a certain point of a season. And what he did in Pittsburgh was 
And I think the Mark Friedman acquisition is a classic example of where a player, there's a need in the lineup. You make it, you address that need, and then you're okay to make changes later on on that same position. I'm not saying Mark Friedman's going to go anywhere, but my point is they needed Mark Friedman at that stretch to begin of the year. And since then, Mark Friedman's kind of fallen off the radar here. He's a, he's the extra, uh, the scratch a lot of the nights. Nikita Zadorov, while Carson Soucy was out of the lineup, they needed somebody back there for the PK. They needed somebody, they pick him up. Carson Soucy is nearing a return. You know, you have an abundance of defensemen. Situationally, you used a player that you needed. And now, what happens? Because something will have to give. Either it's a, a move down to the AHL or batch, it's going to be another transaction involving a defenseman potentially. So it's not not reporting anything here, but I'm just saying history tells us that Jim Rutherford, the way he acts, and he did this in Pittsburgh. He traded for an Eric Branson. He wanted to rival Tom Wilson. He wanted an answer. Had him on the team for a couple of months and said, nope, this is not going to work. Peace. Tanner Tan- Pearson wasn't very there very long either as the return in that trade. Exactly. And there's a numerous examples based on his track record where he's not shy to make trades and he's not shy to move off of certain players or certain situations where all of a sudden you have a surplus to say, all right, these players address the need we had, but we can upgrade. So just just something to keep in the back of our mind because there is a track record when you're a Hall of Fame executive. Uh, there are some trends that you start to pick up in, in the career of an executive like Jim Rutherford. And I'm sure we'll have plenty of time to speak more about the trade deadline over the coming weeks and months. We're going to step aside for a moment. On the other side, we got a bunch of great listener questions in this week. So we'll get to those. We'll answer your questions and we'll do the rose ceremony as well. You are listening to In the Booth with Brendan Batchelor and Randy Janda on your official home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to In the Booth on Sportsnet 650. Brendan Batchelor alongside Randy Janda. If you missed any part of the show, it does live as a podcast as well on the Canucks Central podcast feed. Make sure to subscribe to that. You get Canucks Central with Satin Reach every weekday. You get all the postgame shows, and you get this weekly show in the booth as well. Okay, Randy, you put the call out on Twitter, and we got some great questions from the listeners this week. So let's dive right into them. Uh, and we have one here from at jcog88 who writes in and asks, will there be more than one Canucks player going to the NHL All-Star game? And this is our chance to congratulate Quinn Hughes. Selected, he is going to Toronto for All-Star weekend at the end of the month. My simple answer to this question is yes, of course, there's going to be more than one Canuck that goes to the All-Star game. But I think it's going to be interesting to see, first of all, who goes and how many guys go. Because you could realistically have four, five Canucks that are deserving of being All-Stars based on the way they've played this year. Yeah, and, you know, it really comes down to, I'm going to say this, Canucks fans, it comes down to you because the rest of the way it's fan votes. So we've heard a lot about Canucks Twitter and Canucks fans. Well, this is your time to kind of come together to make it happen. In terms of a prediction, I'll make one here. You're right. It could be, if you include five, Brock Besser's up there in the goal-scoring department. He should be probably the fifth one mentioned. Quinn Hughes is already there. Elias Pettersson, Thatcher Demko, JT Miller, the other guys that would be in contention. I want to say three. Um... Quinn is already there. I do feel like Thatcher Demko is going to be there, even though they've got two goaltenders that are coming from the Western Conference, Connor Hellebuck and Cam Talbot. 
but Thatcher Demko is the runaway Vesna leader right now. I just can't see a world where he's not there. And I'm going to say it's a tricky one because if you... One of Miller or Patterson? Yes. And one of those guys, if you look at points production, it's JT Miller as of right now. He's a top five NHL point scorer. So I, I just think four is too much from a team, even though I think Patterson is deserving of going. If you look at just simply who the point scorers are, Probably JT at that point. So you go with the Norris contender, you go with the Vesna contender, and then you go with one of the top five point scorers in the NHL. If I had to pick three, I'm probably going with those three guys. Yeah, I tend to agree. I would be surprised if we see more than four. And uh, again, fan voting. So if you're a Canuck fan, uh, get after it, get voting, see how many Canucks you can send to the All-Star game. And it'll be interesting to see whether it is Pedersen or Miller. And speaking of Pedersen, we got a couple of different questions on him. Uh, so let's dive into these because I think they are a couple of interesting questions. The first one comes from at Glenn underscore Nelson on Twitter or X or whatever we're calling it now, the social media platform formerly known as Twitter. Twitter, Twitter forever in my heart. And he writes in, or they write in, I should say, and ask, who are PD's ideal wingers? with this current group. And this is going to dovetail into a different conversation that we're going to have here about what the Canucks might need prior to the trade deadline. My answer for this question, I think it's a pretty obvious one, but it's not one that people are going to jump to. But the line he's had the most success on in his NHL career was the lotto line. So even though JT Miller's playing down the middle, if we are looking at this in a vacuum and saying, who are the two best guys you could put on Elias Pettersson's line or on his wings, uh, and whether it's Pettersson that moves to the wing and Miller goes down the middle or vice versa, it doesn't matter. The answer is JT Miller and Brock Besser. And that's, I don't think there's any debate about anyone else on this current roster right now. I think the question is important. What are the ideal wingers? Ideal, not so much realistic, because in today's NHL, you still need that one-two punch as far as centers are concerned, right? And I agree with you. I think the lotto line is the one that, if you're talking about dynamic play and willing, you know, being able to control play and, and potentially giving you an impact like the perfection line. Remember, we're, this is the, the level that they were playing at when they were together. We were talking about them as the best line in the league at the time. It was them, it was Boston's perfection line, and the Colorado line that had Nate McKinnon and uh, Miko Rantanen on it. Like they, We're talking about some of the best lines in hockey. That's how good they can be. Now, here's the issue where, realistically, can you make that happen unless you add another center that can play second-line center? Yeah, and this ties into yet another question that we got. So uh, we'll give Travis Robinson on Twitter some credit for writing this in. He asked, how badly does this team need a 2C so Miller can move to the wing? And this is something that I don't see people talking about a lot. There's a lot of talk about they need a winger. They need a top six winger. To me, in an ideal world, and yeah, it's going to be hard because centermen are much more difficult to acquire and the cost of acquiring them is that much greater. But if you could get a legitimate second-line center so you could free up JT Miller to go to the wing with Elias Pettersson, that would be an absolute game-changer for this team. And whether it's something you could do in the short term or in the longer term, I don't know. But if I was in the management office over at Rogers Arena, if I was uh, talking to Jim Rutherford, yeah, exactly. If Jim Rutherford called me up and said, hey, Batch, what are your thoughts on what we should do before the trade deadline? My answer would be, 
find a second-line center so you can move Miller to the wing because then you'd have one of the elite lines in the league. Yeah, you're talking about paying a premium, but that's a position that would pay dividends in the playoffs so much, right? Sometimes when we talk about the Canucks playing in the playoffs, what's the team that pops up as the most likely opponent? Probably L.A. They've got three options down the middle. So you're right. You can you know, put Miller next to a Pedersen if you acquire a 2C, but at the same time, you could actually spread out the centers as well, where in a series where there's Dano, Kopitar, and Pierre-Luc Dubois, you could counter in a way to say, all right, we can roll. We got three centers potentially, or you load up on, on one line with Pedersen. Now, the question here is, that's an ideal setup to say, lotto line is possible if you can get a legit 2C at the trade deadline, unless there's some team out there, and I go back to the conversation we had in the first segment. Is there an, a player that you can identify that is so devalued right now, or not necessarily devalued, but maybe a team is willing to give up because they're at a certain point in their their team construction or build or retool or whatever you want to call it that would free up? And there's a couple of names that do pop to mind, but who knows with these teams, right? This Otherwise, it'd be just kind of throw out names there. So I don't, I don't necessarily want to do that, but you're right. I think in terms of looking for that type of player, it just gives you so many options because you're able to move him to the middle. You can have them play with JT Miller. If you just want JT to move to the wing, uh, it gives you options with the lotto line. Like You're able to spread out your lineup so much more. Part of me wonders if they think that Pew Suter can be that guy. Now, the way the coaching staff has deployed the lines, we haven't seen that yet, but we're talking about a game against St. Louis where Suter was on the Miller line. And... Uh, you know, Rick Tockett, we've seen, likes having two guys that can win draws on the ice at the same time. If possible, you know, Lafferty was taking some of the face-offs on the Pedersen line in that game against the Blues, too. So, you know, I, I tend to think that that might be a bridge too far for Pew Suter, who I think has been a really nice surprise, and maybe not so much a surprise, but uh, we've seen how much he's been able to impact the game, especially since coming back from injury. Is he a legitimate 2C? I don't know. I, I'm not there yet. Um, but I would be interested to see if this coaching staff is at least willing to explore that. And you're right, Miller could go onto the wing and play with whoever this centerman is if they are able to bring one in. But to me, the that if you do that, you're still missing out on the biggest benefit of bringing in another center, which is that Miller can play with Pedersen, and it circles back to the initial question, which was Petey's most ideal wingers, and to me, that's Miller and Besser without a doubt. Yeah, and I think with that situation, in the Suter reference specifically, Pew Suter has done a great job of being versatile up and down the lineup. Swiss Army Knife, right? That's kind of the name I'm going with here. I like it. Right. I'm I'm on board. All right, we're, we're good on that front, but one thing we haven't considered is Outside of PDG, who has been injured in the top six, right? Like, not many people. And can we even say PDG is in the top six, Exactly, right? exactly. So here's the, the situation where he's versatile, but we're talking about a couple of games here, a couple of games there. Are you able to play that role game in, game out? And are you able to, in today's Western Conference, where... There's so many center positions that center teams that have, you know, really good depth at the center position. Let's just look at the top of the Pacific. I already talked about LA Vegas in the same conversation. They are stacked down the middle. That's why they won the cup last year. One of the main reasons now it could be said, okay, competing with those teams is unrealistic. No, but that's what you're going to be doing in a game, a seven game series. Unless you win the division and you're getting a wild card team. 
you're playing one of those two teams in the first round almost certainly at this point of the season. And Batch, let's say in a, a weird situation where you win and your top's in the Pacific. And or, it, I should say conversely, or if things fall out from under you and you drop into a wild card spot, which looks unlikely for the Canucks at this point, but never say never. But but let's just say Edmonton somehow gets a wild card spot, and I like the Vancouver Canucks in a playoff series against Edmonton. I just like the way that they have structure, but you got a one-two punch that you're going against, probably in Drysdale McDavid. What are you going to do there? If you stand pat and if you don't add a centerman, you know, and Pew Suter is that guy, and you need to go to the lotto line, so he's your 2C. I don't think you can do that. I think you need two or three solid options for really anybody in the Western Conference, and you can start looking to the Central Division as well. You know, those aren't easy matchups to win. So, you know, looking at Suter as a, a great, versatile player that can move up and down your lineup, if you need him to be, I just don't think in the top six that's a fixture. So you do have to upgrade at some point. And, I mean, ideally, he is you know, a tremendous fourth line center for you who in a playoff series makes a big difference where your depth can outgun the depth of another team. And, you know, you, you briefly mentioned the Oilers. I agree with you on that score. Obviously McDavid and Dreisaitl are two of the better players in the league, but in a series against the Canucks, I'm taking the Canucks bottom six over the Oilers bottom six every day based on the way that they've played to this point in the year. So, um, you know, I, I agree. I was just more posing the question mm-hmm. as a, an interesting conversation point, but uh, I don't think Pew Suter is a legitimate 2C for the Canucks, and I, I tend to think that they don't see that either. Otherwise, it wouldn't have surprised me if they would have tried it to this point in the year. Uh, sticking with Pedersen, another question from J.D., uh, who writes in, and we always love getting questions from JD, says he'll be downloading the podcast for his 10-hour flight. He's been visiting Vancouver from down under, so thanks for listening. As always, JD asks, what will make the fan base accept how good Pedersen really is? Will it be the signing of the contract? I cannot believe how much heat he's getting at the moment. And this is a a very interesting question, and I agree. The heat that Pedersen gets surprises me consistently. But what I think it comes down to is a level of expectation for this player and also an anticipation of what a contract might look like if and when he signs with this club. And And it's less about criticizing Pedersen and the way he's playing, although there is certainly some of that. You know, by the way, going into that St. Louis game, he was on pace for 99 points this year, so I think he's doing okay. But it's less about that and more about the narrative around how much money is he going to make? Is he worth it? And kind of preemptively criticizing this guy for a contract that he hasn't signed yet. That's that's how I see the narrative anyway, right? Yeah, and he really hasn't said all that much about the contract other than maybe his interview with um, Elliot Friedman on a boat in Sweden, right? Like outside of that interview. We always have to mention it was on a boat. It was on a boat, and um, you know Elliot, Elliot uh, finds his way on <laughs> the best shoots in the world, quite literally. But you're right. I think a lot of this is about the impending contract, right? And with the William Nylander number being quoted as $11 million, seems like that deal might be coming pretty soon uh, in Toronto. We don't know what that number is, but the conversation about was, was about William Nylander, but then it shifted very quickly to Elias Pettersson. And what kind of impact will it have on Elias Pettersson and his contract? There's a lot of attention on this. And the one thing I will say is, yes, he hasn't played unbelievable out of this world in the last week, maybe even month. But he, you know, let's remember that that's first stretch of the season. 
was out of this world. He was playing some of the best hockey on the planet. And to expect somebody to do that over 82 games is not realistic. If that was the case, he would be a 200-point player, and we'd be talking about Gretzky 2.0. Like, that's not the reality here. He's still playing very good hockey. He's still somebody that is a point-per-game player going back, you know, the last 10, 12 games. So I think that overall angst is coming from the contract situation to say there's a lot of things that are not said, and as a result... Uh, there's projections of, hey, what this contract could be, or, you know, it hasn't been signed. Uh, on that front, though, I will say this, though. The pressure comes with signing the contract. So when that is signed, whenever it is, whatever that number is, however long it is, you know, this is kind of a taste of, of the expectation that comes with the contract. It's In this weird example, it's kind of coming before the contract is signed because there's this anxiety behind it. But Batch, this is what you know happens when you sign the contract. This pressure, it's starting preemptively. It's the reality of playing in a Canadian market. It absolutely is. And, you know, it's, uh, it's fascinating to see and it's going to be fascinating to see what that number is. And, you know, this kind of ties back into the winger question from earlier too. But I, I do honestly believe that part of the reason that Pedersen hasn't been, shall we say, as impactful in the last month, maybe, compared to how he was early in the season. And to be honest, I think that is still kind of crazy to say because of the point pace he's on and the fact that he's still hitting the score sheet on most nights. And we're just coming off, uh, you know, a game under a week ago where he scored two goals in the first period against the Ottawa Senators, and it was one of his better games in recent memory. Um but part of that is honestly down to line mates or lack thereof, right? Like last year he was playing with Andre Kuzmenko. He had a career year offensively. Kuzmenko was nearly a 40 goal scorer. Everything was going great on that line, even if it wasn't going well for the team. All due respect to Ilya Mikheyev and Sam Lafferty, who are both on pace for career years offensively, but Sam Lafferty's career high is 27 points. You know, Ilya Mikheyev on pace for a career-high 49 points prior to the game against St. Louis. So these are not first-line quality players in terms of their production, and you just wonder how much more impactful Pedersen could be if they could get him some more help on the wings, whether it is, as we talked about, by acquiring a winger or by acquiring a center to get JT Miller to move up onto that line. At the time of recording, Elias Pettersson is 13th in the league uh, in scoring. Sorry, he's tied for up there with Austin Matthews, so around the 10th spot. If you look at every name above him, all of those players play with legit first-line players. Nikita Kucherov, yeah, he's got some line mates out there that do a pretty good job. Uh, Nathan McKinnon plays with Rantanen, who's also in the top 10 list. Panarin, we're going to see him pretty soon uh, play the Canucks. They've got some legit players playing next to him. Connor McDavid plays with Zach Hyman, who... Can you imagine Zach Hyman playing with an Elias Pettersson in Vancouver? That would be a, a very big upgrade on the type of puck hound that you want next to your star player. All of those names, Sam Reinhart plays next to Sasha Barkov. Elias Pettersson at number you know, 10, 11 on this list is really the only name that doesn't play with another first-line player. And it is a part of your job as an NHL star and one that is paid really well to make those players around you better. But you reference Ilya Mikheyev is on track for a career high. A lot of that has to do with Elias Pettersson. A lot of that has to do with, you know, his ability to make the players around him better. But there is a real gap when we talk about the top 10, top 15 goal scorers and point scorers in the NHL. 
and who they play with. You know, Austin Matthews, Willie Nylander, they play on one line. There's a lot of success there as a result. And those duos right now is one area that the Canucks are going to have to figure out with Elias Pettersson where what's that right fit? Last year was Kuzmenko, uh, but Batch, they were not a playoff team last year. They didn't make the playoffs. And this is a point that Rick Tockett has made specifically in relation to Kuzmenko is it's one thing to get a ton of points on a team that's not very good and isn't going to have success because you can essentially say, okay, I'm just going to play for offense and play for my points. And I'm not saying Kuzmenko did that necessarily, but look, the defensive side of the game has never been a strength of his. Rick Tockett has come in here and said, no, we want to have team success. We want to raise the standards. And that is a big part of the reason why uh, Andre Kuzmenko has been out of the lineup or demoted down the lineup. And um, on top of all of that, look, like it would be one conversation to have about Kuzmenko if he was still scoring. But guess what? He's not doing that either. He's only got 19 points on the season, only eight goals. His numbers aren't going to even resemble the the stats he put up last year. Um But if you were buying in and playing the right way and being a big part of team success, then guess what? Who cares the sort of numbers you're putting up? Look at Connor Garland. His numbers are way down, but he's a guy that helps this team on a nightly basis win games. That's the kind of player that you need to have. And part of it makes me wonder, and I'm not a proponent of breaking up that third line. I know some people in this market in the past week or so have been kind of hinting towards like, hey, if those guys are playing so well, why don't you move them up the lineup? I don't want to mess with a good thing. I think that line's great. I think it could be huge for them in the playoffs. But you do have to wonder if a guy like Connor Garland having an impact that he is having this year might actually help Elias Patterson a lot in a world where you're not acquiring anyone else to come in. Obviously, the ideal would be to make a trade, improve your forward group, whether it's a centerman or a winger, and give Pedersen some better line mates that way. But assuming they make no moves, he needs more help than he's been getting. Totally. And I think you mentioning Connor Garland there is a really important point because we did talk to Rick Tockett about this after practice one day of like what makes him go? What, what's been behind this Connor Garland turnaround? And remember, this is a player, Canucks fans will remember very clearly, there was a lot of trade speculation before the season even started. But when it comes to the type of player that Rick Tockett wants him to be is, hey, do your job. There's certain non-negotiables that you have to do. And puck management, doing spinoramas, are not things that Rick Tockett wants to see. And Does that sound like somebody? That sounds like Andre Kuzmenko. Connor Garland is still a creative force in the offensive zone, but when he's on the attack, not in the middle of the ice, he's not hanging onto the puck too much, he's not making high-risk plays. So... Yes, Connor Garland, I think, when you're looking for a spark up the lineup, he has been thrown on both of those lines. So sparingly, you can do that. But if Andre Kuzmenko wants to look at an example of how he can change his game and get back in the good books of one Rick Tockett, it's by looking at Connor Garland. Because Connor Garland was, certain points this season, was playing, what, 11 minutes, 12 minutes a game, not getting the look because his game was a little too high risk. And the same reasons that Kuzmenko's been called out. So... Yes, I, elevating those guys can work in in you know spot here or spot there, but I think more than anything, Kuzmenko's got to be looking at Garland's game to say, I got more offense in my game. I just got to clean up these things. I got to think the game a little bit differently. This guy's done it. How do I get in that spot? Which is, trust me, Rick Tockett is probably looking for Kuzmenko to do that because he needs the goal scoring in his lineup, but you got to have that trust. 
Thanks for your questions. We appreciate them as always. And before we get out of here, Randeep, it's time for the rose ceremony yet again. Uh, the Bachelor and The Bachelor give our roses this week for the Vancouver Canucks. And I'm going to go with mine first of all, and I'm going to pick Pew Suter, who uh, got the opportunity in that St. Louis game to move up the lineup onto the Miller line and remains to be seen if it's going to stay that way as the Canucks head out east uh, for their weekend and, and leading into next week in the New York area. Uh, but you look at the impact that Suter has had on the game, regardless of where he is in the lineup, up the lineup, down the lineup, um, you know, the, the special teams opportunities he's had more particularly on the penalty kill of late. Um, you know, he, he's a player that, to me, is absolutely the unsung hero, along with Connor Garland, probably two guys that don't get enough love for how well they've played to this point in the year. And, and you know, we talked about this on the broadcast, too, that uh, the Canucks trend where they kind of, you know, struggled is too strong a word, but they went through that stretch of 500 hockey it kind of coincided with when Pew Suter was out of the lineup. So Suter's getting my rose this week. I think he's been really good and an incredibly important part of this team with the way he's been playing lately. For me, my rose this week, it's Dakota Joshua. This is a guy, I think that St. Louis game meant a lot to him. 42 career games in St. Louis, had nine points in those 42 games. In the last nine games alone, he's got nine points. He's seven points shy uh, of a career high that he set last year in Vancouver. And what I like about his game is the points are one thing. His ability to think the game fast. In the neutral zone, he's able to make quick decisions. He's able to use his body to shield the puck and get the puck to his teammates. And the physicality, top five in the NHL when it comes to hits, there are layers to his game. When he came to Vancouver, we weren't sure what he was. He's starting to etch an identity. And this is a guy that's starting to look more and more confident every single game. So even the games that they lose in regulation that they've lost batch, that third line has been scoring goals even in those games. And Dakota Joshua has been central to that success. Absolutely. I completely agree. We are out of time on this week's show. Make sure to join me and Dan Riccio for the call of the Canucks and the Devils on Saturday at 4 o'clock. You can catch Randeep on Hockey Night in Canada Punjabi. And we'll be back with you again next week right here on Sportsnet 650.